This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Midas Touch podcast, Legal AF, as you know, the A stands for analysis and the F stands for uh, friends is what it stands for. You all know that by now. It's certainly not what you thought it was. Ben Mycel is here of Garagos and Garagos, Michael Popak of Zupano Patricius and Popak coast to coast. Ben on the west, Michael on the east, breaking down all of the legal cases and giving you a free legal education. However, uh, the legal advice and the free legal education is not, I should probably give a legal disclaimer that we are not actually giving you legal advice, um, but we hope that we are empowering you to understand certain complicated areas of law in digestible manners. We thank you so much for your feedback. Obviously, um, we try to uh, respond to as many comments as we can and integrate your feedback into our new podcasts. Michael Popak, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. We actually have a new hashtag that some of the Midas Mighty have given us. They're called they're calling this podcast hashtag LAF laugh as opposed to legal AF. So I like it. So let's have a laugh. I like that. Let's get into laugh. When do we drop these podcasts? Laugh Wednesday morning. Um, all right, let's talk about the first topic. We brought this up on uh, the last few podcasts we've talked about. And as you're listening, you know the coverage that we've given to this issue. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, filed a bullshit bankruptcy petition to try to get away from dissolution proceedings taking place in New York. That's brought by the New York AG, Letitia James. They filed this bankruptcy proceeding in Texas, hoping to establish jurisdiction in Texas. Popak and myself explained to you that this should never have been a bankruptcy petition in the first place. Um, most significantly, the NRA was not a bankrupted organization. Um, there was an 11 day or so trial. Uh, what we've learned in that 11 day trial is the NRA chairman, LaPierre, Wayne LaPierre, uh, he was living the most lavish, grifting lifestyle off the NRA dime with boats in the Bahamas and homes everywhere and lavish spending. Um, but today we have a ruling that we were waiting for, as you know, if you were listening to the last podcast about whether or not the NRA could indeed file a Chapter 11 bankruptcy petition and proceed under such or whether it was a fraudulent petition. After an 11-day trial, after some weeks, a written order came out today. Popak, what is the written order? Judge Harlan Hale, I love that name. That's like right out of central casting. He uh, ruled today, as you and I anticipated, that the petition was a bad faith filing by the NRA. And he, the judge boiled it down this way. You are not to use the bankruptcy code to avoid a regulatory enforcement scheme, in this case, the New York Attorney General, that you don't like. 
you come to this, you only come to the bankruptcy court and ask for its, uh, you know, the strong and um, uh, robust powers of a bankruptcy judge. In fact, as you and I have said offline, there is probably no more powerful federal judge than a bankruptcy judge. But with great power comes great responsibility. And the judge said, you're not going to come here just to get out from under your the criminal investigation that's going on in New York, unless you're a bankrupt, wrong use of the bankruptcy code. And he went one step further, bad faith. But the, the, the weirdest thing about this strategy, if you want to call it that, I really call it walking legal malpractice by the lawyers representing LaPierre, is that if they thought they were just going to file the petition and get away with a two-hour hearing, they were in for a rude awakening. This judge conducted an 11-day evidentiary hearing trial with witness testimony, including LaPierre for a few days, that laid bare all of the shenanigans and fraudulent activity of LaPierre and the organization, which is perfect for Letitia James in New York to use in her ongoing investigation. So they were never going to win this. They had to just sit there for 11 days and provide their adversary, in this case, the New York Attorney General, with all of this amazing stuff that it would have taken them months or years to develop uh, and, and got called fraudulent bankrupt filers. Uh, I don't know who came up with this, this crack pipe idea, but it, it, is, it, is, it was lame brain to begin with. And the federal judge, bankruptcy judge, has found it to be so. The U.S. bankruptcy judge, Harlan Hal described the testimony from Wayne LaPierre as, quote, incredibly cringy <laughs> and described all of the kind of fraudulent machinations that LaPierre attempted to bring this, include bring this uh, bankruptcy petition, including not consulting even his NRA board in filing the petition. I mean, there are a board counsel, of the old lawyers for the NRA were not consulted. Yeah, I mean, and that is beyond rare um, if, if that even takes place at all. I mean, to me, that borders on not just bad faith, but borders on, you know, in, in essence, kind of criminality in terms of what LaPierre was trying to hide, but in trying to kind of hide from the New York Attorney General Letitia James case in New York, he ended up just laying out the case for her in Texas by going through all of the fraud that they committed. You know, when you think about legal cases, there's a lot of things you need to think through as a lawyer giving a client advice. You have to know the law, you have to know the facts, but you also are being consulted as a lawyer, as a chess master, if you will. And a good lawyer doesn't just make one move. A good lawyer thinks three, five, 10, 15 moves ahead to determine how am I going to get this case ultimately in front of whoever the trier of fact is and how am I going to prevail? It is always shocking to me in our profession, Michael, how many lawyers do not even think two or three steps ahead and they're constantly going from one step to the next step and not thinking through all of these repercussions. There's uh, a saying early on in my career that an opposing counsel said in a cross complaint to another opposing counsel, he said, you should, you better recognize the law of holes. Then the other lawyer said, what's the law of holes? He goes, stop digging. 
Um, and I've always kind of took that as sage advice when I was a young attorney, seeing two older attorneys go after each other like that. But the law of holes, which is stop digging um, and making the problem worse and worse and worse, certainly holds true here. So what happens next? Um, the New York case is going to proceed. Letitia James has more evidence than ever. Um, and Wayne LaPierre, who was not able to uh, get his uh, bankruptcy petition granted, is now going to be faced with a host of existential litigation against him for his bad faith conduct. Look, the NRA, if it were a legitimate organization that that uh, cared about the fiduciary duties and responsibilities of the members of the board and its executive director, based on the testimony that was given over 11 days, should immediately remove LaPierre from his executive position and should uh, all of the board should resign and they should, you know, lay themselves at the mercy of Tish James in New York. That's what a legitimate organization would do once all of these things were laid bare in a, in a courtroom, in a bankruptcy courtroom. But we know the NRA is not a legitimate organization and they will just say, well, they just shrug their shoulders. Well, that's interesting that our executive director did all these bad things uh, without authority, without approval, and they'll just go on, which will only, you know, everything they do that is counter to their responsibilities and fiduciary as fiduciaries only strengthens the New York Attorney General's hand in her suit. It's like, you know, one of those finger, uh, um, you know, uh, fingertip handcuffs where they just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and the thing just gets tighter and tighter and tighter around their neck. Um, and, and we're back to your, the law of holes. No doubt about it. Speaking of the law of holes, we have Donald Trump, who is the law of being an asshole and being a law of being just a horrible human being who was a disgraced ex-president, the worst president in United States history, who now is squatting in a resort, Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Um, there was many of our listeners, you know, probably heard, wait a minute, I thought that there was some consent decree in 1993 involving Trump. Didn't we hear that Donald Trump is not allowed to be living in our, our listeners are so sophisticated that they know about 1993 uh, declarations of use in Palm Beach County, Florida. That's what I love about our audience. They are high IQ uh, audience for legal AF, but they follow the facts. And so they may be confused knowing those facts believing that Donald Trump couldn't live there. Why is he still living there? Why is he permitted to be at Mar-a-Lago when we thought that he was not entitled to be a resident based on this 1993 consent decree? And I just want to say this as a practical matter, it's just the weirdest thing ever that he is in this resort, that this is just what he does with his time, not like live in a home or an apartment, but want to live on a resort with other people who are paying exorbitant rates just for access to him in kind of a crowded, disgusting, dilapidated Mar-a-Lago of what it's become purely because he just needs adulation of people and he needs people to validate him by coming. So he has to live in a hotel basically and refuses and refuses to leave. So Popak, you have experience yeah. um, at a municipal level um, serving as county council, 
um, for specific cases. First, explain to everybody what that role is, um, how a private attorney can sometimes be appointed as a county council uh, representing town, well, town attorney, town, attorney. town attorneys or municipalities for you know certain purposes. And what is happening here with the town attorney saying that Trump can still reside at Mar-a-Lago so long as he is a bona fide employee? Here's where I get to crack my knuckles like a concert pianist. I never thought you and I would be talking about municipal government law, which uh, in a prior life in Miami at a law firm I was at, my law firm specialized in representing towns and villages and cities just like Palm Beach. Um, and served, I've served as at least the acting uh, for a night or two city or town attorney in various cities in South Florida, not this one in particular, but I have a pretty good handle on you know, municipal government law. So most towns like the town of Palm Beach, which is on an island um, in South Florida, have to have by their charter a uh, chief legal officer. That person is usually called the town attorney the city attorney, the village attorney, depends on how that particular municipality is organized. They, If the town is large enough, they have an in-house person do that role and they're appointed by charter and they're paid like an employee. And you know, every two weeks or so, there's a town or village or city meeting, town attorney sits up on the dais, he prepares the agenda package, makes sure that the elected officials follow the charter, uh, which is the constitution of the particular city in, in their voting, in the resolutions that they pass, and in their land use and zoning decisions, which touches on this Mar-a-Lago issue. And sometimes the town is small enough that it has an outside private lawyer serve in that role. It's a sort of a prestigious position. People bid for it. You actually, you know, you actually uh, bid, submit a bid, and the town decides whether they're going to select you for a period of time and sign a contract with you. And then that lawyer sits every week or two weeks with the town or village council, the elected officials, advises the staff, advises the city manager or the city executive, advises the land use and zoning board and the like. Now let's bring it forward to Mar-a-Lago. In 1993, when Trump purchased, which was then a dilapidated single family residence, now a dilapidated resort, um, the town was concerned about what, what the use was gonna be. And he had to, with his lawyers, negotiate a deal with the town and entered into what they referred to as a declaration of use agreement, which is in land use and zoning parlance, it is a covenant between the owner of the property, and in this case, the town that governs and controls the use of the property forevermore. It's recorded, it's recorded like a deed with the city clerk and whoever buys the property is subject to it unless they get relief from it by you know, petitioning that, that city council. This one said, you, have, you can use it as a private club, you can have certain accommodations on it, some of which you can advertise, some of which you can't. Um, but there was no, in the declaration itself, there was no restriction per se, and I've looked at it, at Trump living on the property. He never said he was going to live on the property, but there was no restriction per se. So the, the now that he's living there as the winter 
ex White House. I mean, you know, he was there for hundreds and hundreds of days while he was in office. But but now that he lives there in the winter, not uh, not in the summer. In the summer, he in fact he just left uh, supposedly a day ago. He just flew to his other golf course. Uh, country club in Bedminster, New Jersey, where he's now going to live for the summer. You know, as Ben said, he likes to live along with a lot of people that he pays that salute him when he walks through the the front door, usually wearing some sort of uniform. But, But that begs the question, if he's an employee of the Mar-a-Lago, which is what the town attorney has declared in his reading. Well, if he's an employee and he gets paid, he's allowed to live there like he's the caretaker of the golf course or something, you know, like Caddyshack. Um, He and Melania, I guess, are now employed by the club. Then the town attorney has said he doesn't see it as violating that declaration of use because if he violated the declaration of use, the whole Mar-a-Lago uh, country club community comes crashing down and he'd have to leave. So it looks like he's fine with being called an employee. I guess the, 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 the desk of the former Donald Trump, which is on his new website, I guess that desk sometimes resides in Mar-a-Lago until they ship it to Bedminster. Uh, it's sort of silly, but if he screws this up, he's going to lose the right to have Mar-a-Lago be a country club. And since Donald Trump doesn't like to live anywhere unless other people pay for it, I think, you know, he's trying hard to find a way for he and and uh, Melania uh, to have a home within the country club. You may recall that Mar-a-Lago racked up over 78 health and safety violations in the three years preceding 2017. Thereafter, it was cited for multiple other health and safety violations, including for mole, improper parasite destruction, cockroaches, and other health and safety violations. And of course, you recall that Mar-a-Lago was shut down not too long ago for various COVID outbreaks um, that took place on the Mar-a-Lago property. I think that it was a warning sign when an individual is unable to even keep up with the most basic health and safety requirements of where he lives, that he's probably not a suitable person to be running the United States of America. You know, you know what I thought was, that's a very good point. You know what I thought was interesting when I read the declaration of use, the, the town required that he agree that, and Trump signed this himself, and it's actually a three-way agreement between the town Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago Inc. But he had to commit to a no discrimination clause where there would be no racial, gender, or age discrimination, either in the membership or you know the way he operated it. And I bet you that's not true. I bet you there has been discrimination in terms of the membership there, uh, who they've allowed in and who they haven't allowed in. And I'm sure you know, if, if we dig hard enough, we're going to find discrimination and other things uh, that have happened uh, with uh, women, sexual orientation, race, uh, national origin, and other things. Remember, while he was in office, he did a little spring cleaning of his own and got rid of a lot of undocumented aliens and illegals, uh, so to speak, undocumented people who were working as landscapers and in the kitchen and all sorts of other things you know, as only the president of the United States can do, which is to have, you know, undocumented people working in his uh, organization. 
undoubtedly Trump just sitting and stewing in Bedminster right now, watching Fox and Newsmax and OAN on loop, um, which brings us to our next topic. One of the defenses that are being raised by the terrorist insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th is a new and novel defense that I've never heard of before called, quote, and this is what the lawyer is calling it. It's bullshit and it's a stupid label, but it, it, it does speak to a truth, but it's not a legitimate defense in my, in my opinion, uh, or I think most legal observers' opinions, called, quote, Fox Mania. And this particular individual, this criminal defendant, his name is Anthony Antonio, after he was laid off for about six months during COVID preceding the insurrection, he was sitting in his house and according to his attorney, watching nothing but Fox News, spewing these ridiculous conspiracy theories over and over again before he decided to take action. A number of interesting things at this particular court hearing regarding Anthony Antonio. First, Antonio's lawyer, um, one of the things that he's claiming is Antonio didn't really do anything like that bad and that he should wait until like some of the real bad actors uh, go first. But one of the things that he's accused of doing is climbing the scaffolding outside of the Capitol, entering the building through a broken window, obtaining a riot shield and a gas mask, threatening police and squirting water at officer Michael Fanon the police officer who was dragged down a set of stairs by rioters and repeatedly tased and beaten. And of course, Officer Fanon's been on TV recently speaking out against Trump and everyone spreading the big lie about the big lie and saying, I was there. Stop saying that these people were good Americans or nice people. These people literally tried to kill me. And in fact, here, um, uh, Anthony Antonio did say that when he looked in the eyes of Officer Fanon, he saw death. He saw someone who was scared of his life. Another interesting thing that happened during this hearing is that another Capitol insurrectionist who was part of this Zoom hearing, that's how these hearings are taking place right now, someone named Landon Copeland, um, he began just interrupting um, and basically saying, how dare the lawyer or anybody here disparage Donald, Day, Donald J. Trump? How dare you? No one can disparage him. And basically, um, that individual landed. Copeland was ordered now to have a mental competency hearing. And it goes to, yeah, it goes to this issue. These are mentally unstable criminals, you know, who suffer significantly from mental illness, but that doesn't prevent them or should shield them in any way from being held accountable for any of this. But this bizarre echo chamber of Fox and OAN uh, leading to this just fantasy world that doesn't exist um, is just, it's just so dangerous um, for our country. I think one of the things that um, this particular defendant uh, said as he was storming the Capitol was this is in one video captured on police body worn camera. Antonio shouted at officers, you want war? We got war. 1776 all over again. 
as he's wearing a three percenter outfit. And then his attorney goes, this guy wasn't really even that bad of a, of an insurrectionist. And so what do you think here, Popak? Is Fox mania a legitimate defense? No. And if it was, uh, or Foxitis, I think they called it too, then Donald J. Trump should have used it as his defense. Look, let, let's unpack it a little bit for our listeners. Why are we talking about defenses in criminal law? Because there is a concept, a fundamental concept in criminal, criminal law, which is that the person who acts has to act with criminal intent. We call it mens rea. And if you can, if as a defense lawyer, if you can successfully defeat mens rea and show that the person did not act uh, with depraved heart or criminal intent, black heart, black mind, whatever you want to call it, then you might be able to get them off from the crime that he's being uh, convicted of, or you can convince the jury or the judge that he didn't have the requisite mental state. So this judge, came, uh, this uh, lawyer came up with the Fox mania defense and shout out to your brother, Jordy, because he posted this a couple of days ago and said, Popak, take this down, uh, which is what we're doing now. So uh, some of your listeners may recall about 30 years ago or more, uh, the Twinkie defense uh, in a murder case, the lawyer actually said that his client was so intoxicated by snack food in this case, Twinkies, that he could not have formed the requisite mental intent to be a criminal. That went down in flames. That person was convicted. But, you know, it was interesting, you know, 30 years ago on, on, uh, on early television, early cable and all, to watch the defense being presented in court. This is never going to work. I, the magistrate, federal magistrate judge in District of Columbia who heard it, you know, was, was completely nonplussed by this. And, and uh, this guy is going to be convicted. He is go unless he cooperates. Uh, he's going to go to jail for a long, long time. Um, and to say the thing that I find so shocking and so repulsive is when we get to the next story that we're going to talk about and analyze Ashley, uh, Ashley Babbitt and her family uh, suing amazingly for, for wrongful death uh, for what she did. All of these thousands of people that stormed the Capitol all contributed to this um, unhinged, uh, fomented, a stampede, mindless, blood-curdling stampede to try to find elected officials, hang them, draw them, quarter them, and kill them if they had found them. I have no doubt, and nobody, nobody that was there has any doubt, that if these people uh, had broken Really, through, terrorists. Terrorists had broken through the last line of defense which is what we're going to talk about next with Ashley Babbitt and gotten their way into the inner chamber, not after all the elected officials had safely gotten out by way of the Capitol police, but before we be talking about the murder, the assassination of dozens of elected officials in this country, that would be so shocking and so numbing to, the, to this country. So, so for a lawyer to say that there are degrees of venality, there are degrees of criminality, as far as I'm concerned, they all contributed to this giant soup that led to the insurrection on the Capitol. And if this guy was in the vicinity of the officer who was repeatedly, repeatedly beaten, tased, suffered a heart attack and almost died, 
and he did have interaction with him, he's just as bad as far as I'm concerned as the person who broke through the window inside the House chamber and almost made it all the way to Speaker Pelosi's uh, podium. In many ways, we have two big lies that I think are taking place. The first big lie that the election was stolen and that there was election fraud and that Donald Trump won. That's kind of the big lie, number one. But I think we also need to frame the insurrection as the big lie, too, because what Republicans who pride themselves on law and order and they say it and they claim it, but it's all a bunch of bullshit because they enabled and aided a terrorist attack against the United States. And now they want to claim whether it's by Fox mania or Donald Trump saying, actually, the people there were uh, friendly and they were actually, you know, uh, just protesting and uh, exercising their First Amendment rights. The danger of undoing what took place on January 6th is equally, if not even more dangerous than the first big lie that the election was stolen because what the message is being sent, and which is kind of counterintuitive to our entire law studies. And I could imagine being in law school, just looking at this and saying, wait a minute, why am I studying law at the end of the day? If laws don't matter to one political party who legitimately does not give a shit about application of the law, about precedent, about standards, about holding all people accountable. They don't, they don't the, believe in anything. They don't, they're nihilists who don't believe in anything. They believed in the law when the law upheld white supremacy, when the law upheld their vision and view of what they believed the United States of America is. Now that law is being extended to provide equal rights to all communities and that people are recognizing the importance of loving their neighbor as America becomes more and more diverse, the Republican position basically is, you know, damn the law. The law is whatever we say the law is. And at the end of the day, we can have an insurrection and then basically still support the leader of that insurrection. The GQP, the Republican Party, is the party of terrorists. But listen, if thank God and thank the electorate that they voted in Biden and, and the new Justice Department, because heaven help us, if Trump had gotten a second term, if, if this insurrection had happened on his watch for some reason or something like it, and these people were not prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and sent away to Leavenworth, to, as I've said before, to make big rocks into little rocks for the rest of their life or something akin to it, this would just be a license to do this whenever they felt like it. We can never let, as, a, as our society, as a democracy, what happened on January 6th cannot happen again. It's, it's we can never forget. And the only way that will happen is we have to root out these evildoers. We have to root out these terrorists and we have to prosecute them. Because if we don't, heaven help us the next time. They'll set off all those bombs that were, that were in, in canvas bags around the Capitol that never made their way up the front steps will make their way up the front steps and and people will think they're watching unfortunately you know an episode of 24 or something when the whole capital is blown apart with everybody inside of it at least every democrat inside of it 
And ultimately, that's what leadership is about. And leadership in support of a democracy should be bipartisan. The fact that you have 25 to 30 percent of Americans who may harbor vile, disgusting, racist views, conspiracy theories, um, you know, support death cults and cult like behavior. What it takes are leaders in a bipartisan support to say we don't support terrorists in the United States of America. What we support is democracy. We support supporting people's health, supporting our economy, you know, not this crazy idiocracy that is the Trump administration. But I digress. I want to talk now. About I have a new day. You... Wait, wait. I have a new name for you. What? In case this video makes the light of day. Uh, ben is wearing uh, uh, an outfit and I'm now going to give you a new name. And, and in shout out to, to the Watchmen, which is a favorite show of mine, you are now Hooded Justice. I like being called Hooded Justice. My actual legal nickname, which I'm not sure if I shared before, was called Young Jedi when I first started, given to me by a lawyer named Sean Macias uh, in the first trial, who was very proud to give me that nickname. And one of the funny stories about being called Young Jedi is that when I was about five years old, um, I have, and I had then particularly for a five-year-old, very big eyes. And back then my ears were so gigantic and my head hadn't grown into my ears. So when I went to uh, day camp, um, they were giving names and Star Wars names and I was nicknamed Yoda. Um, and I didn't know what that meant, um, but I was so proud of the name Yoda and they would call me Yoda. And then I watched Star Wars <laughs> and I saw what Yoda looked like. And I and I remember the five-year-old version of me started crying hysterically when Yoda was not exactly a uh, good-looking character in the Star Wars. But it is funny that from being called Yoda at the age of five to Young Jedi and now Hooded Justice, Hooded Justice. lawyers, to, I like Hooded Justice, and lawyers will give each other nicknames the same way athletes do from time to time and other professions from time to time because... We deal with a lot of um, difficult and serious, you know, issues. And sometimes you need to just get through the day. So having some fun and having some self-deprecating humor is I've very helpful. I've been called uh, the Velvet Hammer. The Velvet Hammer. I like the Velvet Hammer. So Velvet Hammer, break down for me what Ashley Babbitt is filing. She's filing a, or her, she claims to be filing. Her family. Wrongful, her family. Yeah, she's dead. Um, her family is going to be filing a wrongful death lawsuit. Babbitt was shot and killed. She was one of the insurrectionists who broke in. Um, she was actually seen like breaking into the lower chamber where I think the vice president was located and where the uh, what's the the, the uh, uh, House representative, the head, where Nancy Pelosi's office was and where other top congressional leaders, the speaker of the house's office was, um, where the majority leader, they all have some of their offices and I'm not sure if they're still there, but I used to work on the Hill and they have the caucus rooms and like a lot of them, the, the higher level con Congress members have their offices uh, in yep. this area. He was, and he we, was 30 feet from the house chamber in the speaker's lobby. Yeah. And so she, uh, broke through the glass. Um, you see the video of her kind of climbing through. She was the first person in the mob 
to try to jump through. And there was an agent who was dressed in a suit. And as she was climbing over, um, shot her in the face. Um, and it was caught on video. Um, she passed shortly thereafter. Um, obviously, you know, it's never making light of loss of life, no matter what is, you know, is something that nobody should ever do, but certainly recognizing that there are repercussions and accountability um, for actions like this. And again, this is always, you know, what the Republicans always want to say if um, a black or brown or non-white man, woman, um, gets shot and killed for not stopping immediately in a tra- in a traffic stop or not turning over the ID right away or not stopping right away and stopping a few feet away so that they can be in the light. You always hear from the Republicans, they should have complied. They should have complied. And the retort is always back to that. You don't get to kill someone. You don't get to play judge, jury, or an executioner because they didn't show you their license. Or even if they engaged in a petty crime of taking bubblegum from a store or selling a cigarette. You know, one of the interesting stats, Michael, that I've been looking into in some of the other work and research that I do, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but about 95 to 96% of all police interactions um, tend to involve either minor offenses, like, or nothing, you know, over or total no offenses at all. Um, And there's only about 2% of all police interactions that actually involve somebody who's engaged in some violent behavior. Yet we have a policing system where we stop minor insignificant in the grand scheme of thing crimes with machine guns and guns and militarized weapons and which, which was you know, allowed, I, which is allowed by which has been allowed by a series of decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States leading to an overzealous use of stop techniques by police leading to death for black and brown people and unfortunately it all goes back to the Supreme Court yeah and one of the things the courts have used sometimes to justify dismissing cases is that underlying unlawful conduct um, is sometimes grounds under a, you know, legally as the, I disagree with the law um, to shoot, to kill or to, to, or to engage in force in certain situations. And so specifically here, what the family is saying in this Ashley Babbitt case and what Babbitt supporters and what the GQP they treat an insurrection against the country as such a minor inconvenience yeah. to the United States of America. Get a fender instead of, right. Exa- instead of the terrorist attack that it is. Yeah. And you go, well, it's so hypocritical that they have one view about the person who doesn't turn over their license in the first 10 seconds of a police encounter that that person can be shot and killed according to Republicans. But here uh, they have a different view. It is hypocritical because they're hypocrites. They're making it up as they go along. It's total and absolute bullshit. Popak, I believe that this case is going absolutely nowhere. There is no basis whatsoever, in my view, to file a wrongful death lawsuit Um, when the decedent was a terrorist insurrectionist who was joined by other terrorist insurrectionists to kill politicians who then got stopped while she was intruding on 
our sacred uh, constitutional halls. Yeah, we talked about this, I think, at episode one or two, actually. Um, I, I, took, I took the same view as you did, which is the Capitol Police officer. Now, let me, let's set the stage. And for our listeners who are interested, about two months ago, the New York Times did a uh, uh, basically a centerfold overlay of the timeline that led to Ashley Babbitt being shot by the Capitol Police, uh, step by step, moment by moment, really from the moment she entered uh, illegally the, uh, the Capitol to the moment where she was shot and beyond. So if you're interested, look at that breakdown. But what became clear to me when I looked at that in the accompanying video that's in the interactive piece online is that first of all, the mob had overwhelmed and overrun the Capitol Police. We all know that. Um, as we know from other reporting and even the hearing, the audio, the, the cops on the ground were telling their supervisors and calling for the National Guard and saying, we've lost the line, we've lost the line, meaning we can't hold them back any longer because you're talking about thousands, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, almost thousands of terrorists against, you know, basically a handful of Capitol Police. It was even, that was even more acute in this particular location which we've identified as the House chamber and the speaker's lobby, because the only thing that separated a mob of 20 people, including Ashley Babbitt, and elected officials who were still in the chamber, I wanna make that clear, they had not yet been able to be cleared out of the chamber. So at the moment when Ashley Babbitt was shot by the Capitol Police officer, in a moment that I believe is a moment of her heroism, that should be celebrated and not him being sued for, or the Capitol Police being sued for wrongful death. At that very moment, which is what matters, as we learn moments matter, as we just saw in the Chauvin trial with George Floyd, moments matter. In that particular moment in time, if they had broken through, if that angry mob, a uh, mindless mob of 20 people led by Ashley Babbitt, a Air, former Air Force veteran, had, had broken through that particular line, they would have made it into the chamber with elected officials present and God help us at that moment. And that's what's going through the mind of the two or three, and that's all there were, Capitol Police that were in that particular hallway, 30 feet away from the chamber, when Ashley Babbitt made the decision, her own assumption of risk, she made the decision to break the glass of the wooden door and begin to climb through it in order to open the door to let the mob through. And that police officer who has one duty and one duty only, it's not protect, to protect the building. It's not to protect the paintings and the statues and the flag and everything else. The Capitol Police have one duty and obligation, protect the elected officials and staff of the United States government. And he pulled out that weapon and knowing he had no backup, that he had no other police with him, other than I think he had one or two fellow police officers also stationed in that 30 foot, that 30 foot uh, location. This was their Waterloo. This was their uh, this, 1776 or whatever they're saying. Yeah, this was this this was the cop 1776. They allow Ashley Babbitt and her 20 marauding mobsters to break through. And we have assassinations and death of elected officials, plain and simple, no other way to put it. So he pulls out his, his service revolver. He fires one shot. Ashley Babbitt falls to the ground dead. 
And you know what? That mob did not break through. That mob did not get their way. Time was bought to allow the elected officials to safely escape from the chamber. And to now have that, the leader of that mob in effect, at least that mob, that segment of the mob in that moment, to have a wrongful death suit. I, I found it shocking that her lawyer is quoted as saying, well, she was a, a former veteran. I'm sure she would have complied with an order to stand down. Has he seen the video? She was climbing through the window along with 20 other people with, with murderous cries and yells to do nothing but to cause grievous bodily injury to whoever she found. And he thinks that if the cops said, stand back, stand down, that she would have, he's insane. Not sure if you read this article and switching gears for a second, Popak. Um, I guess switching gears fairly abruptly for a second, Popak, um, about Florida's new restrictive voting bill. Um, and similar to all these restrictive voting bills that are all based on big lie, number one, that there was rampant voter fraud in the election, which wasn't, which is just used as a way to discriminate against non-white voters um, and limit their ability to have access um, to the polls. But it was interesting, a Loyola law professor, Jessica Levinson, uh, Loyola is actually where my law partner, Mark Garagos, went to um, law school. Loyola is not too far away from where our office is. Um, downtown. But Jessica Levinson proposed a novel concept, uh, first identifying the fear that a conservative Supreme Court, which essentially tilts, um, and I hate the word conservative. So every time I catch myself say the word conservative, I don't view these people as conservative. So I got to call myself out, call yourself out when you say conservative against crazy people. But this radical right court um, after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is six to three in favor of the radical uh, right, whose agenda is to strip away our rights and discriminate against non-white people and hold up a white supremacy kind of hegemonic uh, structure. Um, you do have Chief Justice John Roberts, who sometimes um, yeah, in trying to uh, bring some civility to this court, um, is siding with um, uh, the left or with, you know, I think kind of the normal jurisprudence um, judges, but with the passing of Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg, it's hard to overrule the 6-3. Um, and so oftentimes it'll either be 6-3 in favor of radical right or 5-4 in favor of radical right. So Jessica Levinson basically talks about uh, in this piece how there's Article 3 of the Constitution Article three of the United States Constitution establishes the judicial branch, the judges, the federal judiciary um, in our system. Um, but she points out that there is uh, in Article three ways to exclude or remove certain items, uh, certain jurisdictional areas that the court can rule on is basically the premise. Um, uh, I would, and, and she thinks that Congress can be able to pass legislation signed by the president that can um, remove or exclude certain areas, um, certain jurisdictional areas like voting rights, so that the federal judiciary or the Supreme Court 
would not be permitted to rule on those specific areas. That's basically um, the premise. I think there's kind of two flaws in it, but I'm open to your um, view, Popak. When you really delve into the law in this area, there was a case uh, recently, a 2016 case called Bank Markazi versus Peterson, which appeared to somewhat minimize the impact of a earlier um, court decision, which basically uh, said that the separation of powers prevent Congress from you know doing that. And of course, going back to one of the most famous of all Supreme Court decisions, Marbury versus Madison. Love, love Marbury versus Madison is establishing the separation of powers and the um, the importance of separation of powers. So I do think legally Congress doing that uh, would be infirm, um, unfortunately. And then I just think as a practical matter, uh, given the layout of Congress right now, given the Joe Mansions, the cinemas from Arizona, I just don't think Democrats have the vote to structurally change um, uh, the, the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, I liked it as, a, as an esoteric concept. You've pointed out all of the practical flaws in it. The other one is um, that you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And if you establish the precedent and, and where this is coming from for those, you know, and I, one of the things I like about, I love many things about our listening audience, but one of the things I really like about them, and we see it in the in the tweets that come out um, the day of the episode drops, is that they don't want us to dumb or water this down. They want us to talk about these concepts and have it explained to them, um, so that they understand it. So you you went off on appropriately on the Article Three of the Constitution that establishes the federal judiciary. The language that this law professor is talking about is some language in there about the ability of Congress to effectively regulate um, jurisdiction. Um, and she, she ponders uh, whether that allows them to, let's say they pass a bill, in this case, Senate Bill 1, which is the, um, the Voter Rights Act, the new Voter Rights Act, which if passed, will completely overturn and veto all of these individual state efforts like Texas, like Georgia and Florida uh, at voter suppression. She questions whether they could also add language in the bill itself, in the law itself, that not only says this is the law of the land, but Supreme Court, we are stripping you of your jurisdiction to decide that this law is or is not constitutional. Um, A, I agree with you. I don't think there's the votes for it. B, I'm worried that if we establish this precedent that in the future, when we don't hold Congress, <laughs> we're really going to be screwed uh, as as Democrats, as as real and true liberals uh, and believers in the democratic process. Because it could be you, you live by this, you know, you live by the so sword, you die by the sword, and it could be used against us. And Lord knows the Republicans are great at at turnabout is fair play and using those very things against us. Uh, woe be us if if McConnell gets a hold of a similar. A precedent and uses it against us. So while I like it in concept, and I think she's probably right, there may be the ability to thread the needle and allow the Congress in certain limited circumstances to tell the Supreme Court what they can and can't do from a jurisdictional standpoint. I think, it's, I think it establishes, unfortunately, a dangerous, dangerous precedent in the times that we live in. And I don't think I'm ready to cross that Rubicon. 
I don't disagree with you there. And so we'll put a pin in that. And we'll, of course, continue to follow Supreme Court rulings on future episodes of Midas Touch Legal AF and continue to explain to you the dynamics that are taking place in the court. I think it's helpful to conclude the show, Popak, um, not by talking about lithium, which was one of the topics, um, whether the We're not EPA, doing lithium strip mining. We're not going to do lithium strip mining, but I think we conclude. This is an audible at the last minute. I think we <laughs> I think we conclude the shows by giving some practical legal lessons and we take a step back and help explain people see things maybe in a more simplistic way. And so what I think is helpful for our audience to explain is that um, today we talked about criminal uh, cases um, like the individual who was using Fox mania um, as a criminal defense. We also talked about civil cases where somebody, uh, a family of somebody who died is suing. Um, in civil court, your relief is money at the end of the day. As a plaintiff, um, yes, there are cases where you can get what's called an injunction, um, which can be to stop or to compel the other side to do something. But really, at the end of the day, civil court is money court. And when I do jury selection in civil cases, that's one of the things I want to talk to the jury about candidly. Like, are you okay with the concept that the way you're going to vote is by awarding one side money? And are you okay with that? Yeah. And before we leave civil side, um, just to, to round it out, except for places like Delaware Chancery Court, which we'll talk about on another episode, which governs corporate conduct, our court system as compared and contrasted to let's say overseas in London, other places, our judges sit as both courts of law and as courts of equity. Meaning as Ben just described, as a court of law, it can, or the jury can award money damages. It also sits as a court of equity, meaning it can do those non-monetary things to redress some injury or grievance. You can call it an injunction, a mandatory injunction to prevent something or to cause somebody to do something. So our courts are sort of unique in the world because you don't have to go knock on the door of a court of equity to get equity or another court down the street to get justice in law in money damages. The same judge, same jury system can do both equity and law in our civil system. And so when we talk about civil cases, you may know civil cases as personal injury cases. Somebody gets injured and then they sue the party that injured them. Another type of civil case is a breach of contract case. Parties enter into a contract. One party claims the other side didn't hold up their bargain um, or the other side argues that maybe the contract didn't even exist. Um, so there's a breach of contract. You may have heard of defamation cases where one side argues that you've disparaged their reputation in a way that meets certain standards um, that rise to the level of what's called defamation. There are cases for wrongful death, which is kind of like a, uh, not kind of like, it's a personal injury resulting in the death um, of an individual. Now, um, now you're into torts. 
Now we're into torts. Um, one of the things when we talk about personal injury is we talk about um, negligence and we can talk about professional negligence, medical malpractice, legal malpractice. Um, these are all kind of civil uh, cases. And of course, there are also civil rights claims and civil rights actions for both criminal and civil. We have a federal court system and we have a state court system. And there are certain standards and certain types of cases, depending on whether the certain standards are met that may fall under state law or may fall under federal law. I'm not going to go deeply into that now, but federal courts and state courts um, oftentimes do, I mean, not oftentimes, you know, do different things. Federal judges their appointments are always for life. Um, so the district court judge, the federal court of appeals, and the Supreme Court, unless they are impeached, have full job security. And the state court judges are either appointed or elected and serve terms, but different states have different rules regarding the length of those terms and how long judges can sit for um, and whether there is life tenure or not in certain states for higher elevated uh, courts like state Supreme Courts. It gets sometimes extra confusing, though, because sometimes like in New York and not to throw off our listeners, the Supreme Court is the lower court and the Court of Appeals is the higher court, um, which is a strange thing to think about. The state Supreme Court is the lower court in New York. But these are just names that are given in different states have different um, rules. Most most states, right on that, most states call their civil state court trial court a superior court. That's that's general. New York is unique because it likes to be really maddening and confusing. And it calls its lowest level trial court its Supreme Court and reserves the highest level appellate court where you take the appeal in the state, which most states call their Supreme Court. So California Supreme Court, Nevada Supreme Court, Texas Supreme Court. New York calls that the Court of Appeals. In civil courts, the standard generally is if you're the one suing, you have to prove your case by what's called a preponderance of evidence. So basically 51 to 49. If you break the tie, if you view it as this is one of the things we tell juries um, when we're giving closing statements, if you think of a scale of justice and it just tilts slightly more in favor of one party, in this case, the party suing or the other party, um, then the party where that scale tilts, even if it's just so, so ever slightly. Yeah, the, um, way, we, the way we did it, Hooded Justice, continue with our, <laughs> our, 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 uh, our nomenclature today, is the way we describe it to juries is you have a scale of, literally have a scale of justice, picture a scale. You have a brick on one side and equally weighted brick on the other. So a, a brick on one side of the scale and it tilts ever so slight, a, a brick on both sides and one weighs more than the other. If that evidence just slightly favors one side, that side's the winner. Now, on the criminal case, the standard, and these are criminal cases are, you know, theft and larceny and murder and assault and, you know, all of the typical things you would associate as crimes. And there it's up for the government to determine by beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard. And you have to get a unanimous jury. Uh, If there's just one juror who finds that there could be doubt or reasonable doubt 
um, then uh, that would be what's called a hung jury and you don't get a conviction as a prosecutor. Popak, you doing okay with those coughs? Great. Hooded Justice, I almost broke our unbeaten one take streak for the podcast. I'm glad you pitched in with the whole scale and justice and all of that. Thank you. I'm and sure our uh, listeners loved having their ears coughed into by you. But, I'm uh, sorry. It I, just I, makes you it just makes you and them human. closer. We're it makes human. you closer. <laughs> You're a human being. The velvet hammer is a human being <laughs> that can sometimes get a coughing attack. Um, and all of that. And and I thought we we're just going to celebrate the fact that Hooded Justice got his second Moderna shot today. I thought that was good. Yeah. You know, that's why I'm dressed as Hooded Justice today, because it was a rough it was a rough uh, sleep last night with Moderna, two yesterday afternoon. I'm coming on the other side of it now. But last night was a combination of uh, like feeling super hot and super cold um, and a ton of chills. And today wasn't the easiest day, but uh, I feel good now. But you were on your way to being vaxxed and relaxed. Midas Touch merch, which I will plug Midas Touch merch to close the show. We have vaxxed and relaxed T-shirts and masks and uh, a bunch of great Midas Touch gear. We have Club Democracy gear. Go to MidasTouch.com. Google the Midas Touch store. The Midas Touch merch is really flying off the shelves and people love the Midas touch, uh, love the Midas touch merch. I saw, I got a notice that we were like in the 1% of 1% of the way they our store is set up of like all of the other stores. I mean, people are really loving this merch and we appreciate your support. I also want to plug myself and Popak um, during these episodes um, I like to always give as much outreach as I can to you, the listener, and let you know that we talked about those civil cases and criminal cases. You know, my law partner and partners do criminal law. I don't do criminal law. I do civil law. I do catastrophic personal injury cases. I represent victims of sexual abuse. I've sued the Catholic Church. I've sued schools. I've sued um, institutions, corporations for individuals who have been discriminating against or sexually harassed or sexually abused um, is an area. I do large breach of contract cases. I represent founders of companies who have been screwed over and don't get their uh, percentage of equity that they were promised when these deals become very big. You can contact me, ben at geragos.com, B-E-N at G-E-R-A-G-O-S.com. If you or a friend have a court case or think you may have a court case, give me a shout, ben at geragos.com, G-E-R-A-G-O-S.com. And I will directly get in touch with you or make sure I have a lawyer reach out to hear about your potential case. Popak? And you might get a two focus cases that Ben and I do together. And then you get you get hooded justice and velvet hammer uh, <laughs> for one of your cases. So I have a very similar practice to use some of the teachings that we did today. I've got a business tort uh, litigation trial practice where I represent uh, business people and others who have breach of contract or other types of business torts <clears throat> against each other in state and federal court and arbitration. I've got a sort of high profile employment practice where I represent uh, individuals and management in employment related matters, including <clears throat> discrimination, harassment, uh, and, and the like. Uh, I represent people in financial services industry, which is one of my 
one of my past lives. Uh, and I represent people like Ben does in, um, you know, complicated, sophisticated uh, cases that raise national importance, including civil liberties. And that's where uh, Zampano, Patricius and Popak, my firm often join forces with Garrigus and Garrigus and Ben Mysalis and his partners. Uh, and we do interesting and exciting things, some of which we talk about on, on hashtag laugh, which is, I guess, one of the new names for our podcast. Well, we always appreciate your support. Midas Touch Laugh Legal AF is not possible without you. Um, your comments are incredible. Um, I wasn't feeling great today, and I figured I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go through. I gotta persevere and do the podcast today. Um, but it was very important to me to keep the consistency of the show. Although a lot of people told me I should just get some sleep. <laughs> today but um it was great spending the day with you um uh, it's always great to have these legal conversations we hope you left more educated on the law than when you came in um and this has been Mycellus and michael popak from legal af signing off thank you so much for listening thanks ben